is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering four conversations from Season 3, Episode 40, our look at best practices in Lean Nash, plus, from the vault, a 2021 conversation that touches on issues surrounding cirrhosis, which is the stage in disease at which Lean Nash is diagnosed far too often. This conversation starts with Moss and Nordine pointing out specific elements of their algorithm that they're proud of, the specific focus on patients with type 2 diabetes and patients over age 40, the similarity to dominant diagnostic pathways from other recommendations, the creation of a one-page algorithm that incorporates recommendations for primary care or endocrinology, which is pre-diagnosis, with hepatologists, which is post-diagnosis, for patients with NASH and fibrosis level 2 or higher, and the discussion of other more recently developed tests such as MASS, FAST, BFib, and CT1. Ruth Campbell compliments the publication for its simplicity and clarity, and particularly its recommendation to repeat testing every six months to two years, which is far more common than the three to five years recommended in other algorithms. Michelle Long agrees strongly, noting that many patients have lost the follow-up in a three- to five-year follow-up pathway. Mazin notes that the annual FIB4 updates for T2D patients align with the minimal schedule for checking for eye, kidney, or neurological complications of diabetes. The rest of the conversation focuses on other benefits of this schedule. Mazin and Michelle's article provides clear, step-by-step guidance on how to identify, diagnose, and treat a rarer form of NASH that far too often is diagnosed in the ED, by which time the patient has progressed to cirrhosis and begun to decompensate. When followed, this algorithm can help lean NASH patients by identifying disease in its earlier stages when it has not yet had a dramatic impact on daily living, quality of life, or life expectancy. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. Mazen Nuruddin. I also want to go back and comment on your first comment that there's a lot of synergy with other guidelines. But I also want to mention a couple of things in our algorithm that I think we're proud of. So the, the algorithms start by recommending, for instance, screening for lean patients in certain conditions, which is high risk. We used the type 2 diabetes patients and we chose an age of 40 based on cost-effective analysis data that came from our group and published in gastroenterology. We go through the same alg- algorithm such as FIB4 and then followed by FibroScan. And let me start telling you about slight additions, I would say. We made the ELF test more clear here as with the AGA documents. It was still not available commercially. Now it's available commercially. And I think the piece that we really uh, went beyond what the previous guidelines is the left side or wherever you will be looking at the document uh, or the green part of it, which is in the previous documents, they talk about screening, FIB4, then fiber scan, and then referral. And it's mentioned that if you are in the indeterminate zone, you might want to confirm the fibrosis with either liver biopsy or MRE. The step that we really went beyond, so we have everything in one document. So for primary care and GI to manage the NAFLD is the at-risk NASH. So the at-risk NASH are those with NASH and stage 2 and fibrosis, which will require treatment now, but in the future we'll have FDA drugs approved based on their SNASH and F2. And in our algorithm, we define methods that you can identify these patients, which is a little bit beyond the recent documents. So we talk about the FAST and we talk about other scores and other tools. There's FAST, there's the MASS score by MRI, there's the MAFIP score by MRI, there's the CT1, the multi-parametric to identify those with NASH at at risk NASH. So we go a little bit beyond that. The document has a certain amount of words, so we try to be concise 
precise and provide the most evidence. But I think we're particularly proud of that step beyond to manage them in secondary or tertiary care centers or GI offices. So that was that in the algorithm. Uh, and we try to be more inclusive. Louise Campbell. Yeah, no, I thought it was very clear. And I think that's a beauty of the piece of work. But the other thing that you went beyond where everybody else does is the recommendations of reviewing the Fibroscan or MRE. It was six months to one to two years, depending on the level of fibrosis. That to me is important because when we look at non-lean NASH, those recommendations of three to five years are a little bit <laughs> long for people who may progress fast. That was another area on this that I absolutely loved. It was clear, it was concise, it was about allowing stratification of who was more severe to look more frequently and to really reinforce any behaviour change. It came within that section as well. So all around, it's gone beyond some of the other documentations, but it's quite short, it's very concise and it's very clear. And I think that's the beauty of it. Michelle Long. Oh yeah, I agree, Louise. I mean, I think that we thought about what should be the interval following up and it, it just went back to how we practiced practice in our clinic. And, you know, if you say to someone, oh, okay, look at this again in three years or five years, you know, with the current level of knowledge of where it's at, it's just going to get lost. It really it isn't going to be prioritized at all. And it really doesn't take a lot to risk stratify someone. These are very routine tests. Uh, FIB4, you know, you probably have what it takes to calculate a FIB4 if you've done standard labs with your doctor. So we recommend that it's done on a more routine basis and even allow for, you know, on a yearly basis, because people need to have a routine in, in order to remember how to get something done. And since it's easy and not very costly, probably free because you're already getting these tests, then it totally makes sense to just get into the habit of like, okay, I need my year, yearly liver check. Absolutely. But it also gives patients to say, I haven't had my screen. I haven't been tested. It, it gives them information that allows them to help prompt progress and not get lost. Jean was talking the other week about how many people fall off the pathway. People don't get letters, people don't do things like that. But when you tell somebody three to five years, it doesn't strike as that important in my life. If you tell them six months to a year, it racks it up automatically. It's something I've got to be aware of now. And I think when we talk about people taking control of their own disease, these sort of guidelines do make it very clear. And they're, they're concise, primary care, secondary care, tertiary care, anybody can follow them. Again, that's the beauty. It makes it easier. Certainly in third world or developing world countries, some of these can be utilized if they don't have some of the other more expensive technologies, for example. Again, that's about adapting this process and framework to where it can be effective most. So, Louise, you make an interesting point, which is, so in response to Michelle, if we should be looking at Lean Nash every year, would that suggest that despite the three to five year recommendations on NASH tied to obesity or overweight patients that we should be evaluating their livers every year as well? Would that be your suggestion or is that how you practice or is there something that makes this special? Let me take a jab out of this so we don't get controversial and, and I'll, I'll, I'll go back. Controversy is a good thing, Martha. It's a podcast. <laughs> so I, I don't want to. You know, it's, I want to use uh, Michelle's comments. Let's see what we have on FIB4. I think it's a great test. It's a cheap test. You can repeat it, as uh, Michelle said, whenever you want in your office. There are also data that suggesting it might not be as good in type 2 diabetic patients. We need more research on that. There's data showing that people in the indeterminate in zone and low prevalence zone, there's still people that they might get in trouble. So 
the thought was just if I have a patient who's already, I'm probably puzzled why he has NASH, but we know now that's quite a bit entity, that lean NASH, and I'm ruling out other causes and then I diagnose them with NASH. Rather than waiting for three years based on maybe one FIB4 test of other documents say so, you can repeat it sooner because it's just sitting in front of you and looking at you and it's like, calculate me. So we just wanted to provide shorter interval. I mean, put a stethoscope on someone six months or once a year is easy. Then FIB4 is that easy to calculate. So that's why we, we went for shorter interval. And I, I still think the other documents are outstanding. It just makes me nervous to repeat a test in three years from people memory standpoint and the primary care standpoint and from practicality standpoint. Don't forget that they, all the diabetes workup is usually done on a yearly basis. So you just can tag that along and while they're getting their retina check or their UA check or something, whatever they want to do, you can do it at least on a yearly basis. Okay, I'll be controversial. I believe that the reason that the three and five year recommendations are given is because it is an effort to calm the fears of people, most of whom are payers in some way, shape or form, that if we test this every year, oh my gosh, what does that tell us about what it's going to cost, what we're going to find, blah, 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 blah. Not necessarily through a patient-centric window. Through a patient-centric window, I get where you're saying. If you're if you're doing yearly checkups with people, and this is is an easy thing to do, why wouldn't you just look at it yearly? So that was the first question behind my question. And there, I agree with you. I think it makes a lot of sense. And I think it should be patient-centric. Of course, you don't want to do something not cost-effective. I have done a lot of analysis on cost-effectiveness. We have not done one repeating it every year in particular, but I can tell you from now, just simple math, it's going to be cost-effective to repeat it probably every year. Okay. So that makes sense to me, number one. Number two, the first time I really, remembering that I've been involved with Nash for all of three years, when I first became involved, I remember going to a investor meeting and having one of the keynoters was a guy who'd lost his mom to lean Nash very quickly. And and after doing a little bit of digging around, I came to the conclusion that either the pathogenesis was faster or because we weren't looking, we were picking people up way too late, but that on a per patient basis uh, in the States, lean NASH might be more expensive, might have, might actually might, might be expensive faster if, because the progression was faster or we're picking up late, then we're going to be spending a lot of money on patients once we picked it up quickly. And that, that was being overlooked. And when I raised that with people, they were kind of touchy about it. So I'm wondering whether anything about pathogenesis or disease progression went into your thinking about frequency of testing as well is simply the idea that it's a convenient thing to do. That's a really good point, Roger. And, you know, we did talk about this a lot in the earlier, I think it's BPA, the best practice advice um, number, um, maybe three or three and four. People who are lean, who have fatty liver disease, often have less severe phenotypes when they present, uh, but they actually progress and have liver-related outcomes, sometimes even in some papers, even more frequently than those that were not lean. So I think we're just scratching the surface of the natural history and trying to think about this as a potential subphenotype of fatty liver disease. You know, there's been a lot of effort and we have a lot of literature now, but there's still a lot that needs to be done to fully understand. The biggest thing that I see clinically is patients who come and say, oh yeah, I was told I had fatty liver disease and then my doctor did an ultrasound and then they said, I'm good. And you know, what is that supposed to mean? You're good, you know, like done, check box forever. That's the end of it. And not even doing the appropriate 
restratification test. So, you know, in particular, when someone is sitting in front of you and as a provider, providers are busy and they have little time and they need someone who looks lean. It may not trigger in their brain that this person could have fatty liver disease. And so we in particular want to caution providers and saying this is not necessarily a benign condition. You need to do the work to help understand where your particular patient sits on the disease spectrum. You need to break that bias that you have when you're looking at your patient saying, oh yeah, they're totally like lean. I have patients who are looking very different than them and really trigger that we're hoping this document helps trigger that they need to have that conversation. Just because someone is not obese or is not overweight doesn't mean that they're off the hook. And we've seen this now in the natural history studies that we do have, and hopefully there'll be more coming out to kind of add more details onto this. And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Surfing the Nash Tsunami on Wednesday, August 17th. Yorn will be back from vacation and Stephen Harrison will be with us. Until then, stay safe and surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.